I'm Nancy Cavey, National Individual Disability Attorney and ERISA Disability Attorney. Welcome to Winning Isn't Easy. Before we get started, the Florida Bar Association says, I have to tell you that this isn't legal advice. But now that I've said that, I will assure you nothing will ever prevent me from giving you easy to understand information about the ERISA disability claims process, the games disability carriers play, and what you need to do to get the disability benefits you deserve. So off we go. Now, today, I'm going to be discussing three different types of illnesses, fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis, and chronic fatigue. These diseases have in common many subjective complaints of pain, fatigue, and cognitive issues. And disability carriers just hate claims based on subjective uh, levels of pain or fatigue or cognitive issues. Now, I'm specifically going to discuss two topics. What disability insurance companies don't get about the difference between fibromyalgia and rheumatoid arthritis, and why, in some circumstances, you should not be tracking uh, your um, symptoms and functionality in a log sheet in a chronic fatigue claim. Got it? We've got a lot to cover today, but before we do that, let's take a quick break. Have you been robbed of your peace of mind from your disability insurance carrier? You owe it to yourself to get a copy of Robbed of Your Peace of Mind, which provides you with everything you need to know about the long-term disability claim process. Request your free copy of the book at kvlaw.com today. Welcome back to Winning Isn't Easy. What disability insurance companies don't get about the difference between fibromyalgia and rheumatoid arthritis. Now, fibro and rheumatoid arthritis, RA, cause similar symptoms, but they're unrelated and they are different medical conditions. Each can be disabling on its own and both can be disabling in combination. Medical research shows that RA can increase a person's likelihood of having fibromyalgia and people can have both conditions at the same time. Yet disability carriers don't understand the different causes, the different diagnostic methods, the different treatments, uh, and they just tend to disregard the unique causes, diagnostic methods, and treatment for fibromyalgia and for rheumatoid arthritis. You kind of lump them into a big pot called subjective medical conditions. They don't take the time to differentiate them. Now, let's talk about different causes. Fibromyalgia is a chronic neurological condition that causes amplified body pain. That can result in cognitive dysfunction, depression, and fatigue. On the other hand, rheumatoid arthritis is an autoimmune condition, and that can cause damages to the synovial tissue lining your joints, for example, in your fingers or your hips or your knees. That, in turn, can lead to inflammation and pain. RA can often cause permanent damage to the bones and to the connective tissues that can result in bony deformity of the impacted joints. Now, there are different and there are shared symptoms. Let's talk about that. The common symptoms of fibromyalgia can include body-wide pain, including the torso, the thighs, the buttocks, the arms, the back, the neck, even the head. There are also some specific spots of intense pain, and these are known as trigger points. There are also gastroenterological uh, problems, including constipation, diarrhea, 
There's even dizziness. There are headaches. There are sleep disorders associated with this. And of course, there's that chronic fatigue and problems with concentration. Now, let's talk about the common symptoms of RA. The common symptoms of RA include joint pain, joint tenderness, joint swelling, joint inflammation, joint stiffness, uh, loss of range of motion, for example, in the fingers or in the shoulders, joint deformity. Now, RA can occur either in one location or in multiple locations across your body, primarily as I normally see in the hands, the fingers, the knuckles, the wrists, the elbows, the shoulders, the hips, knees, sometimes ankles and toes. RA is characterized by symmetrical symptoms, and that can occur on both sides of the body. However, the symptoms can progress at different rates, uh, and the severity of the pain can also uh, vary, and it's not symmetrical. What are the shared symptoms? And those shared symptoms can obviously make it difficult for the disability carrier to figure out what the disabling medical condition might be. So RA and fibromyalgia have shared symptoms. There's pain on both sides of the body. There's pain in various parts of the body. There's morning stiffness. There's reduced mobility and range of motion in, of the joints. There's stiffness that's wor worse in the morning or after periods of rest. There's cognitive impairment. And secondary to pain, there's generally chronic fatigue. So while you might not be able to differentiate between the diagnosis of RA and fibromyalgia, I think it's important that you're describing your symptoms to your physician and how those symptoms impact your ability to function. Now, in my view, the disability carrier should be parsing this. They should be looking at each diagnosis separately and then in combination to decide whether or not you meet the applicable standard of disability in your policy or plan. They just tend to lump it all in one big pot. I don't think that's the right way to do it. Let's talk about diagnosis. As a rule, it is more difficult to diagnose fibromyalgia than RA because there's no gold standard test to determine whether or not you have fibromyalgia. The diagnosis of fibromyalgia is a bit of a diagnosis of exclusion. The American College of Rheumatology has diagnostic criteria for fibromyalgia, and that in part can include widespread body pain. And there's something they use called the symptom severity scale. Uh, they want to see that the symptomology has been at the same level for at least three months, and there's no evidence of any other disorder that would explain your pain. On the other hand, RA is based on a physical exam, the medical history, blood work, and imaging testing. Now, the disability carrier will normally review your medical records closely, and it's not uncommon for the carrier to attack the diagnosis of fibromyalgia and rheumatoid arthritis. Um, why? Because the diagnostic, cri diagnostic criteria rely in part on the self-report of you. And if they're looking for a reason to deny the claim, they're going to deny the uh, lack of objective testings or finding on physical examination. They're going to argue that your complaints are inconsistent with your activity of daily living or is inconsistent with surveillance. And so that's what they're looking for in terms of attacking the, the uh, fibromyalgia case. It's lack of diagnosis, uh, lack of meeting the uh, the uh, criteria with the tender points, uh, that sort of thing, uh, the uh, reliance of your physician on your subjective complaints, inconsistent or inconclusive physical examination findings, and the um, inconsistency between your complaints of pain or fatigue and your reported or observed activity. So let's contrast that with rheumatoid arthritis. 
There, the disability carrier is going to be attacking the results of the blood testing. Now, many people with RA have signs of inflammation in certain body antibodies on testing. Sometimes the testing can be negative, notwithstanding the objective physical examination finding, which is consistent with RA. So the disability carrier is going to seize on the negative uh, blood testing to deny the claim, or they're going to argue that the testing was inconclusive, or sometimes I see the argument that the testing that was used just, just isn't reliable, isn't valid. Those are all some of the games that they're going to play with the uh, diagnosis. I think it's really important that your doctor is diagnosing, uh, documenting rather, the physical exam findings, the blood work, diagnostic studies, and explain how they arrived. What was their thinking in terms of how they got to this diagnosis? Now, Again, disability carriers think that blood work is the gold standard for the diagnosis of RA. So you've got to explain that if your testing is negative or equivocal. How about treatment for fibromyalgia and rheumatoid arthritis? They're going to expect that you got care from a rheumatologist, and they're going to poo-poo home remedies and natural treatments. They are going to argue that the nature of the care that you're getting is inconsistent with the policy requirements and that you haven't gotten reasonable or necessary medical care at the level at which comports with your complaints. Now, obviously, the medication for both conditions is designed to reduce pain. But in RA, you're getting medication to reduce the inflammation and slow the progression of RA. So regardless of the nature of the treatment, your medical records should be documenting your treatment, your response to the treatment, and any side effects of the treatment. It should be helpful, well, really helpful, if the doctor can parse the treatment you're getting for each condition if you've got both. Often these claims are denied um, in part because of the diagnosis, uh, the lack of symptoms or physical exam findings, uh, and the lack of appropriate treatment. So what should you do if your claim has been denied? I think that you have got to hire an experienced ERISA disability attorney immediately. You're only going to have 180 days in which to file an appeal. And as I've said, we've gone through the laundry list of reasons why claims should be are denied. And we need to make sure that we are uh, getting the carrier file, figuring out all the reasons why the claim has been denied, contacting your doctor, getting the necessary uh, medical support or rebutting the opinions of the carrier or plan's doctors, if necessary, getting our own IME, if necessary, getting a functional capacity evaluation. So you can see that we've got a factual uh, attack, a medical attack, and obviously that needs to be combined with the necessary legal arguments. In my situation, my appeal letters are 25 to 65 pages long because that is the trial of your case. In an ERISA disability case, once the appeal process has ended, you can't add any new evidence. You don't get your day in court. You can't add new things in. The judge is stuck looking at that uh, record. The record is your carrier's file at the time of the last denial. Now, the other thing you need to understand is that sometimes carriers will apply what's called a subjective medical condition limitation, if that's in your policy or plan. That clause lets the carrier plan legally limit the payment of benefits to just two years if it's caused by a subjective medical condition. It's not uncommon for the possible listed laundry list uh, to include fibromyalgia. And sometimes I'll even see arthritis. Obviously, if your policy or plan and your carrier ultimately denies or terminates your benefits or applies an objective medical condition limitation, it's really time to call an experienced ERISA disability attorney. 
we need to look at that policy or plan and see whether the medical condition you have, fibromyalgia or RA, is really a listed condition. And if it's not, then that's an attack. If it are, if you've got fibromyalgia and RA, then the issue is going to be, well, is the RA excluded as a subjective medical condition? Uh, and if so, obviously you've got a problem. But if not, then the argument is going to be that you're disabled because of the RA. And that's going to take additional medical proof. Sounds complicated? It is. I want you to be thinking about that while we take a break. Are you a professional with questions about your individual disability policy? You need the Disability Insurance Claim Survival Guide for Professionals. This book gives you a comprehensive understanding of your disability policy with tips and to-dos regarding your disability application that will assist you in submitting a winning disability application. This is one you won't want to miss. For the next 24 hours, we are giving away free copies of the Disability Insurance Claim Survival Guide for Professionals. Order yours today at disabilityclaimsforprofessionals.com. Welcome back to Winning Isn't Easy. Why you shouldn't track uh, your symptoms in a chronic fatigue or long-term disability uh, claim. Now, I am sometimes equivocal about whether we should do this or not. Um, You have the burden to prove that you're disabled as that term is defined in your disability policy or plan. And one of the things that disability carriers generally demand is objective evidence of your restrictions and limitations. So the issue becomes, what are your symptoms? How do those symptoms impact your ability to perform the material and substantial duties of your own occupation or any occupation? Now, that can be hard to do without a functional capacity evaluation or a CPET test. Uh, And I think that one of the most important tools that you can used to help quantify your symptoms and the impact of your chronic fatigue symptoms is a diary in the right circumstances. Now, in the right circumstances, the diary will help your doctor render an opinion about your restrictions and limitations that prevent you from performing your own or any occupation. In other words, it's going to explain the nature of your symptoms, how those symptoms impact your ability to work, and will document relapses, your response to treatment. However, you might be tempted to supplement this um, on a daily basis and submit this whole chart as to why you can't work a full day of work or a a full uh, week of work. And I think that's a bad idea. It's a bad idea in that if you say the wrong thing, uh, if you're tracking your symptoms on a a daily basis, they may wax or wane depending on your activity. That may not necessarily be consistent with what you're reporting on the activity of daily living forms that you're giving, and it certainly may not be consistent with what your doctor is reporting. So my problem with keeping at least daily logs is the problem that you have with consistency. But I think that there is another problem, and that is disability carriers will tend to use surveillance, uh, and they will take that daily log sheet and they will try to put surveillance on you. And you might have a good day and you might have a bad day. You might have a cluster of bad days, but they may correlate your daily log sheet with that surveillance that they have. So it's a golden opportunity for them to assign surveillance. And generally what they'll do after they've done that is they'll take your statement uh, and they will point out to you inconsistencies between your activity of daily living forms, uh, the logs that you have kept and um, and what your doctors had to say. So I don't necessarily like daily logs. If you're going to do a log, I would prefer that you do a log 
uh, on a weekly basis. Um, but what's important about that, I think, ultimately, is that that needs to be correlated on an objective basis with the diagnosis and the restrictions and limitations. And in chronic fatigue cases, I think that having a functional capacity evaluation or a CPET exam is the stronger way to document your restrictions and have them sort of be consistent, if you will, cooperative of your own uh, report. Now, why is that important? Because many times disability carriers will take uh, your daily log uh, surveillance that they have and say to the doctor, look, you know, they she said that she couldn't do that, but here's film of her doing that type of activity. Um, she said that she had good days or bad days, but here's, you know, running days of her of doing all sorts of this activity that's not consistent with good days or bad days. Uh, and what she told you, doctor, about what she could or couldn't do is not necessarily consistent with that log. So, doctor, taking all of that into consideration, don't you think you're relying on the patient's subjective complaints? And don't you think that they can actually do more, particularly since we've got film that's inconsistent? Obviously, doctors don't want to be put in this type of situation and more likely than not in that situation are likely to say, well, I agree with you. You know, I, I was wrong. I relied on their subjective complaints. Now, of course, if there's strong physical evidence on examination uh, that's consistent with the diagnosis, then carefully, carefully complete the log, be consistent, um, expect potentially that you're going to get surveillance. Uh, but again, be, be, be thoughtful about keeping that daily log. As I said, I would prefer at best a weekly log, and I would actually really prefer a CPET or a functional capacity e examination. All of this is factually dependent and case dependent. Uh, that's why I sometimes hesitate about diaries, not doing diaries, what you should do, because I think it's on a case-by-case -case basis. And when I have a claim that's been denied or terminated, um, we're talking about the log, keeping a log. If I represent somebody at the early stages of the case or their own, own claim, we have that discussion about keeping a log. Should I, what should I do, that sort of stuff. So I'm sorry I can't give you, ex you know, a strong answer about keeping a, a diary, but you've got the benefit of my thoughts. And again, case by case basis. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Winning Isn't Easy. And I would love it if you went and left a review, that you liked our page, that you share it with family or friends, and that you subscribe to this podcast. I look forward to talking with you in our next insightful episode of Winning Isn't Easy. Thanks.